Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. After a tumultuous few months, we have a new prime minister, and he's been setting out his agenda. We want a stronger NHS, better schools, safer streets, control of our borders and levelling up. That is the mandate that I and this government will deliver for the British people. But first, Rishi Sunak has to unite his party. Not easy, when his first few days in office have already seen a string of sackings and a few rather controversial appointments. The former Tory chairman, Sir Jake Berry, claimed last night Ms Braverman committed multiple breaches of the ministerial code. And if that makes you think there may be trouble ahead, just wait till you see the rest of the Prime Minister's to-do list. I would depict the in-tray as sort of half a dozen bits of paper at the bottom of it and then a colossal elephant sitting on top, which is the economy... The big question now is what scale of cuts the country will face. Experts have said that there's about £30 billion that the government needs to raise on a yearly basis. The scale of the problem is such that health, education, other public services are really under strain. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the challenge ahead for Rishi Sunak... The economy is the most urgent crisis looming over us all. So to understand the Prime Minister's options now, we'll be speaking to the Times economics correspondent a little later. But first, to find out what's really been happening in the corridors of power in yet another remarkable week in Westminster, we turned to a trusted guide. This is Tim Shipman, Chief Political Commentator of the Sunday Times. Still recovering. <laughs> I mean, Tim, a lot has happened since we last spoke. Just a week ago, we were talking about Liz Truss resigning. We now have a new Prime Minister. Tuesday morning, after a little shuffle through Buckingham Palace, Rishi Sunak emerged as the new inhabitant of Number 10. And yet, 
it feels like by Tuesday afternoon, that's probably the moment that we started to get a sense of what life was going to be like with the new Prime Minister. Talk us through what was happening in Parliament on Tuesday afternoon. Well, to start with, Rishi Sunak was in his House of Commons office and every minister or person who wanted to be a minister was sitting by their phones. I did a quick run through Portcullis House. Most of them were not daft enough to sit there in open view on their telephones. It was deserted apart from one person who I could speak to and she had an appointment with somebody else and said, I must stick to this appointment. But everybody else was in hiding by their phones and non-ministers are desperate for the phone to ring. Ministers want the phone to ring, but not too early. So the early calls go in to all the people who are being fired and they get the message, tramp off to the Prime Minister's House of Commons office and are quietly dispatched behind closed doors. And then the moment comes where someone finally tweets, aha, Sunak's back in his official car and he's driving back to Downing Street. And that that then is the moment where all the serving ministers can relax, knowing that the sackings are over. And instead, they get the sort of perp walk up Downing Street if they're going to get a new job. <laughs> so you don't have to be photographed on the way in if you're about to be sacked. No, some previous prime ministers have suggested that everybody ought to be marched up the street and make them suffer. But a walk of shame. it's a pretty inhumane way of doing things. Some of them were given the chance to sort of go of their own accord. Jacob Rees-Rogg wrote a terribly elegant resignation letter in his own handwriting. And, it, you know, he didn't put the date on it. He put St. Crispin's Day. And those of you who of remember Henry V will know what that means. But, yeah, it was a very characteristically Mogite production. What did you make of the news as it started to trickle out of firstly those sackings? And then what do we think was happening inside Number 10 later that afternoon when a new cabinet was emerging. Well, what they always do is they have a whiteboard up in number 10 where everybody who matters is on a bit of paper that gets stuck to the board and these things get moved around. And sometimes they get moved around because people refuse to go where they've been asked to go. I think with a new prime minister, that's the moment of your maximum authority and pretty well everybody's going to do what they're asked to do. Everybody else was wondering what the mix would look like. Sunak sacked 10 cabinet ministers and you know he'd been spinning a line of unity you weren't quite sure how he was going to pull off that unity. I think in the end, most people would agree he got a pretty broad ideological spectrum of the Tory party in his cabinet. He did reward a decent number of his friends, but not quite as many as Boris Johnson and Liz Truss had done. And as it developed through the afternoon, you know, there was a, a large number of people we were told in the waiting room in Downing Street, a dwindling number of jobs. I was sort of texting some of them and getting back. I'm in the holding pen, you know, don't know what's happening. Well, at least you're in the building. Um, <laughs> That's a good sign. Yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting blend. Keeping James cleverly as foreign secretary, that's a sort of nod towards the Boris Johnson gang and, to a degree, the Trust gang, but has been seen to be doing a perfectly admirable job there. Jeremy Hunt, I think, was always likely to stay as Chancellor. Mm. And then the big controversy, of course, was that other great office of state, the Home Secretary. Suella Braverman has just in the past few minutes been confirmed as Home Secretary once again. And it is an announcement that is already sending ripples through Westminster. And I think people were genuinely a little bit surprised that Rishi Sunak, who had stood on the steps of Downing Street and talked about... Have ...integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. ...was bringing back Suella Braverman six whole days after she was effectively drummed out for twice breaking the Ministerial Code of Conduct. 
why was it such a shock for people watching that she was brought back in again? I mean, just how bad was the reason she was sacked six days earlier? And what sort of reaction were you hearing from Tories? Well, I mean, the initial reaction was a series of vomit emojis which arrived in my phone and cold fury from people who'd worked for Liz Truss, who had been there while all this happened a week ago, and regard her as having been not only reckless, but slightly dishonest in the way she'd gone about things. Now, if you speak to Suella Braverman's allies, or you read the statement she made the week before, this was all a bit of a mistake, and she was very sorry, and she'd gone and done the honourable thing and fessed up and uh, offered her resignation. What she had done was not really accidental. She had twice emailed a government document that wasn't supposed to be shared with people outside government, first to her own private email, which is itself a breach of the code, precisely because if you start sending things outside the building, a warning flashes up on government emails. She then forwarded it on to John Hayes, the sort of veteran right-wing backbencher, who Braverman appeared to have been consulting almost continually in her time as Home Secretary. Um, and accidentally, she copied in someone she thought was John Hayes's wife. I mean, bizarre in itself. But that was actually someone who worked for another MP who went to the chief whip, who went to the cabinet secretary. And the cabinet secretary told the prime minister, this minister needs to go. She said it was all an accident. She said it happened at four o'clock in the morning when she was frazzled after a long day at work. I'm told it was sent around about half past seven in the morning. Why she felt compelled, let's put it politely, not to tell the truth about that when it's blindingly obvious when an email was sent because it says it on it. And then it just sort of raises the question as to why she was consulting John Hayes in the first place. I mean, he's a sort of well-respected old-timer. He was David Cameron's kind of unofficial whip to the back benches. He's done a series of Minister of State jobs. He's not without his experience. But if you're the Home Secretary and you're making big, important, potentially sensitive decisions about policy and about things like warrants and all that kind of thing, quite why John Hayes not only needs to be consulted about this, but had, by all reports, been in and out of the Home Office two or three times a week to assist her. Uh, other people in the department say she had a, a set of undecided decisions piled up on her desk, as far as the eye could see. So there's a question about her wisdom and a question about whether or not she does things in the right way and a question about, frankly, whether she was up to the job. And Rishi Sunak is obviously no great fan of Suella Braverman's, but... She backed him at the weekend pretty emphatically, and had she not, perhaps she would have backed Penny Morden, and perhaps we would still be now in the middle of a leadership contest. And so that was worth a lot to Rishi Sunak, though his team uh, always at great pains to tell us he wasn't offering jobs. I mean, if he didn't, it's hard to see how Suella Braverman would have backed him. And I think there's a lot of people who think even if Rishi Sunak had offered uh, the job of Home Secretary, he might well have been well advised to say to her, actually, I'm sorry, the Cabinet Secretary is not very happy about this. So I obviously want to give you a Cabinet job, but it can't be Home Secretary and we'll find something a little bit less controversial. I want to have you back, I want to, all that kind of thing. Mm. And it wouldn't be quite difficult for Sue Alabram to stroll off at that point. But instead, MPs are pretty enraged. They didn't like the return of Suella Braverman and they didn't like the return of Gavin Williamson, who has been kind of acting as Rishi Sunak's chief whip for the last few months and is seen by a lot of MPs who've been leaned on, cajoled and whisper it quietly, the occasional threat, I suspect, has been <laughs> issued from Sir Gavin. They think that was a retrograde step as well. I think most people would say Sunak got a broad range of ideological opinion. I think most observers, and I would agree with this, think this is a stronger cabinet than the one that preceded it. There is more experience there. There are more what some of us patronisingly refer to as the grown-ups uh, back in the building. It looks like you know a good, solid cabinet, but those two decisions, and Bravham in particular, mm. is not going to go away. And the Home Office is notorious for, you know, ministers don't tend to last there long. I mean, what's interesting with her is that, 
you know, as you pointed out, there are questions of competence to do the job. But also, in the style of her resignation, when she resigned from Liz Truss's cabinet, pointed out the mistake and admitted that she, you know, it was a, a, a resigning offence. But then she also brought up, you know, she certainly seemed to have briefed to the press that uh, there had been sort of rows, stand-up rows about immigration. So it feels like he's probably created problems for himself in the foreseeable future. Well, I think a lot of Tories would regard Suella Braverman as a landmine waiting to go off. And in two regards, as you observe, one is on the policy. I'm sure we'll come to that. The other is on the letter she wrote was pretty incendiary. It effectively called on Liz Truss herself to resign. Not quite in so many words, but as good as. And, you know, I think I saw one of my esteemed colleagues from a different newspaper calling her the the new queen of the right after she'd achieved this job. And in a sense, that's what she's become. So, you know, she is a representative of that wing of the party. And if Sunak annoys her in some way or falls out with her over policy or over the way she behaves, it's not, you know, it's perfectly possible to see her going off and turning her machine gun on Rishi Sunak. Liz Truss originally, as I revealed at the weekend, wrote her a very consistent letter saying you should be very proud of what you've done I fully expect to see you back in high office very soon which is the kind of pat on the head you get when someone's made a bit of an error and you want to offer them a, a way back and hope they don't go and kill you from the back benches but instead she turned around and basically said well actually I think you should go as well and you know that's what Rishi Sunak can expect if he has to get rid of her at some point but as you observe some people think this was the real reason she went she had been pushing for tight controls on immigration and Liz Truss, in pursuit of this economic growth agenda, was beginning to listen favourably to different cabinet ministers who, in their sectors, are short of workers and need particular people and particular visa schemes to operate in order to fill jobs that remain unfilled. And it's quite difficult to get economic growth if you haven't got people to do the work that is potentially there. And that's what makes this very interesting, because Rishi Sunak, on the face of it, used his first Prime Minister's questions to say, you know, we must have tight controls on immigration. And let me tell you, Mr Speaker, what the Home Secretary will be focused on. She'll be focused on cracking down on criminals, on defending our borders. But his biggest problem, as it was Liz Truss's, is the economy and getting growth going in a responsible way. And there is going to be an almighty row in government about what that exactly means. Now, if you talk to Suella Braverman's allies, they will say, look, a lot of these cabinet ministers are chancing their arm here. There is a legitimate debate to be had about which sectors really need extra people and which are just being lazy where the you know businesses won't pay British people a bit more to do the jobs or whatever it is. But there are some sectors like care, like the NHS, where having a slightly more straightforward um, way of getting into the country, I think would probably be beneficial to everybody. And that, I don't know what, agreement Sunak and Braverman have come to, but they must have discussed those issues. And it seems pretty likely to me that whatever they have concluded together or separately is likely to cause a great deal of friction either between them or between them and the rest of the cabinet in the weeks ahead. And I guess apart from the cabinet here points, you know, the last six weeks and the crisis we've been plunged into will also change his agenda and what he's able to do. Talk us through his entry coming in as Prime Minister because it feels like this has got to be the worst entry to be coming into. Pretty grim entry. I would depict the entry as sort of half a dozen bits of paper at the bottom of it and then a colossal elephant sitting on top, which is the economy 
And Sunak's got one thing going for him now, which is that Liz Truss turned up, did what she did, said we've got to slash every tax, you know, that we can lay our hands on, borrow like Billio, and that's all going to be great. And it turned out not to be great at all. He's had his economic argument proven, so that gives him some strength. He's also arrived at a time when the Tory party genuinely realises that they need to unite or die. Mm. So he's more likely to get support for what he's doing than he perhaps might have been if he'd won first time around. But his hands on the economy are more tied than they were then. And if you go back to what Rishi Sunak was saying in the summer, yes, he was the guy who put up national insurance. Yes, he was the guy who was going to put up corporation tax next year. But he was also the guy saying we need to slash business tax on investment. We need to change some of the uh, tax rules that don't make a lot of sense. There was talk of equalising capital gains and income tax and that sort of thing. And there were lots of kind of what you might call university seminar ideas on tax that Sunak was quite intrigued by. And I think his room for manoeuvre on doing any of that stuff is dramatically reduced. And the other problem he's got, which is worse than what Liz Truss inherited, was that before the pound tank, the cost of borrowing went through the roof and all of that, there wasn't a necessity to make absolutely colossal cuts in public spending. And now we're in a, a worse economic position than we were. And, you know, they've now announced that the budget will be delayed to November the 17th. At that point, we will find out effectively part of the reason they've delayed it is because they've now got to have a big row about what to cut. And he's kept Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary in post, who wants to see 3% of GDP spent on defence. That's going to be very difficult. We've heard a lot of stuff about cuts that will have to come in unprotected departments at a time when the NHS needs more money as well. I mean, the NHS always does need more money, but that's one of the biggest problems they have to solve. But they know unless they can crack the NHS backlog and uh, get the economy on track, that they're in big trouble. And I think those are the two biggest sort of things he's got to tackle. They're obviously interlinked because a lot of money is involved. So He's got the freedom and the goodwill to get on with it, but I think the number of things he might do has been dramatically reduced, and it's going to be a real difficult balancing act when they start announcing cuts in public spending. It's interesting that they've delayed the budget. It does feel like, you know, Jeremy Hunt had become the most important man in in Whitehall for a bit, but this sort of implies that Rishi Sunak wants to go over the numbers himself. He wants to have a bit more control on the teller. Just how bad do you think it's going to be? I mean, are we looking at austerity 2.0? Well, if you listen to some of the people like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, they say that this is going to be on a par with what George Osborne did back at the start of the coalition. I think the expectation would be that it would be for less time and they'll want to be coming out of this next year, but they certainly need to have a medium-term plan to balance the books. And at the moment, they haven't got anything of the sort. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, We're talking only a few days ago, Jeremy Hunt turned up at Chequers with Liz Truss and said, this is what it's going to look like. Your mini budget is gone. This is what we've got left. And he was effectively telling her what's what and dictating what was going to have to happen. And I think there were some people around at Chequers that weekend who thought that that was probably at least the meaningful end of the Liz Truss premiership, certainly the end of the Liz Truss project. It was three or four more days before it was the end of Liz Truss. But that was very much Hunt saying, 
this is what we have to do. Now, Sunak obviously has spent several years as chancellor, knows his way around the department, you know, even now probably better than Jeremy Hunt does, and will have strong views about it. Now, they will certainly want to minimise any disagreements between them because that sort of thing will spook the markets as well. I think there'll be a slight assertion of, if we go back to Blackadder 2, who's Queen? Well, you know, Queen is, is very much the Prime Minister, First Lord of the Treasury and all that. And presumably this coalition in Cabinet, which feels unwieldy and might cause trouble very soon, will at least get them through the budget day. We'll at least get them through November the 17th and we'll get enough of the party to back what could be very controversial cuts. Well, if it doesn't, we'll have a general election. It's that simple. I mean, if a government can't pass a budget, that's the most basic thing that a government needs to do. Yeah, they will have to come up with something that keeps the party you know, on the same page. I wouldn't say happy. I don't think anyone will be happy with any of it, to be honest. But, you know, if you uh, listened to Sunak's first go at PMQs on Wednesday... Prime Minister! Yeah! He did a decent bravura job of batting off a lot of questions that were slightly awkward about Suella Braverman and other things. And he came out, you know, bashing Keir Starmer all over the park in the sort of, certainly in the second half of it. When he ran for leader, he promised his party he would borrow billions and billions of pounds. I told the truth for the good of the country. He told his party what it wanted to hear. Tory MPs left very, very happy. And I think they're in a mood where they think, OK, this guy's shown he can do this. He's shown that he's a serious person and they need to give him an opportunity. And I think most of them are of a mind to do that at the moment. He'll have to tread so carefully because he doesn't want to blow up that goodwill. But Tory MPs with any kind of sense of self-preservation will obviously have to back that budget and they're going to have to stick with this Prime Minister for another 18 months and hope that he can do enough to convince the public that this is a competent administration and that that will at least put them in contention of fighting the next general election. And just finally, for him personally, what are the big challenges? You know, we've already seen in the course of his first week his presentational style has changed quite a bit from his first statement to PMQs. We know he's got these problems trying to keep the party together and, you know, it has been described as ungovernable. What are the things he'll be most worried about? Well, I'm not sure what he'll be worried about, but I think there are issues for him. As you say, we've seen three Rishi Sunaks in the last week. The first iteration was a sort of love child of Theresa May's Maybot. I am humbled and honoured to have the support of my parliamentary colleagues and to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. Lurching its way through a pretty awful statement... Then he did his statement in the street where the content, I think, was pretty good by most people's reckoning, but the delivery was sort of very slow. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your prime minister, and that work begins immediately. And he was reading every new fact as if it was on a separate card. It's as wooden as the lectern. <laughs> it was, yes. And then at Prime Minister's Questions, we saw this sort of slightly swashbuckling middle-order batsman attempting to tonk the ball over Cow Corner at every turn. I am glad, Mr Speaker, that the party opposite Honourable Gentleman has finally realised that spending does need to be paid for. <laughs> it is a novel concept for the party opposite. One of his challenges is to work out who he is and what persona he wants to present to the world and get better at presenting it. 
that leads us to a second point, which is, which Rishi Sunak is this? Is this the the fly glib young man who's barely ever had a setback in life, who waltzed from one expensive school to one great university to riches beyond most of our imagination in his own work and in his marriage, has risen, you know, seamlessly up the greasy pole, and who frankly at times is a little bit snippy and a little bit up himself, waltzing around, caring more about you know, his designer coffee mug or whatever it is and his sliders and his slightly too expensive suits? Or is it the Rishi Sunak who fought his way, didn't get a scholarship to Winchester, upset his parents, worked very hard, grafted, backed Brexit when everyone expected him to remain for his career, suffered a, frankly, pretty depressing humiliation in the leadership contest and has now had to bounce back suck up to Boris Johnson, do a deal with Suella Braverman, and is now the Prime Minister. If it's that, Rishi Sunak suggests he's got a few scars on his back and a little bit more bottom. And what I've seen in the last few days, while the Braverman appointment is pretty cynical, it suggests this is a guy who's got a bit of political game in him, which it wasn't entirely clear he did have earlier in the year. His spring statement was a catastrophe. He then got into this mess over his wife's non-dom status, if he's got past that, looks to me like he might have developed what our American cousins refer to as stones. Balls. <laughs> Cojones. <laughs> and if that's the Rishi Sunak, this could be quite interesting. Coming up, as the Chancellor's fiscal event is delayed... What could the new government do to steady the economy? But first... Hello, I'm Chloe Tilly. Join me and Callum McDonald for Times Radio Breakfast every Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 6am. We'd love to have you with us as we go through the biggest news stories of the weekend, sport and business. Hopefully bring you some warmth and some fun over breakfast and, of course, answer any questions that you have, particularly surrounding the cost of living crisis. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I hope you are one. If you're not... Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. I'm Aarti Najifan. I am economics correspondent at The Times. The last fortnight has been complete upheaval. It's felt like what you knew yesterday, you don't know the next day. And every day is a clean slate. And it's just been... um, I can't even think of a word. What has it been? It's just been, I mean, baffling in many ways. And Aarti, the last time we spoke to you on the podcast, feels like a lifetime ago. It's only been about a week. (laughs) At the time, the markets were in disarray over Liz Truss's budget, her response to the budget, the sackings, everything just seemed to make matters worse. We now have a new prime minister. How have the markets reacted? It's been really positive, actually. So when we look at gilts, we're nearly back to where we were before the mini budget. And when I say gilts, I mean government bonds. The yield on those bonds is usually what we take as the government cost of borrowing. And that has been coming down nearly to the levels we saw before this whole economic experiment kicked off. The pound is actually doing better than it was before the mini budget. And it does go some way towards allaying concerns that the damage was permanent and moves on from the idea that, you know, the Liz Truss government has passed now and we've got a fiscally conservative chancellor and a fiscally conservative prime minister and the markets have responded positively to that. feels like we're all learning about gilts at the moment, but just explain why the gilt yields falling. Why does that actually impact us? How does it impact our lives? Why does it matter? So there's two main reasons. And if we think of gilt yields as effectively the cost of government borrowing, that helps explain it a little bit. So one thing is if gilt yields come down, it means that the government is spending less on the money that they borrow, which means that the budgets will go further and will hopefully be spent in a way that benefits us. The second thing is that gilt yields are used to set fixed rate mortgages. And the majority of mortgage borrowers are on fixed rate mortgages. And a lot of them are actually coming up for renewal. So the more these yields go up, the more those rates will also go up. So it could mean cheaper borrowing for homeowners and mortgage borrowers as well. And that obviously feeds in quite a lot to household budgets. God, so it really does have a massive impact. It's not only going to mean the government has a bit more money to spend, it also means most of us, our mortgage payments won't go up as much. They'll still go up, but not as much as they would have done even a week ago. Exactly. How have the markets responded not just to the new prime minister, but you know he's now unveiled this new cabinet. How has that gone down? So it's gone down quite well. Part of that is to do with the fact that the main appointment that the markets were looking out for is the chancellor, and that is Jeremy Hunt. They've kept continuity, and he is quite fiscally conservative as well. He was the one that was rushed in to promise that we'll balance the books. So following through on that expectation went down well. It really has stabilised the turbulence that we've seen in the recent weeks. Feels like life is slowly going back to normal. Yeah. Just a little bit of breaking news out of this morning's cabinet meeting. This morning at Rishi Sunak, updated the cabinet on the timing of the fiscal event. That's no longer happening on Halloween. The reason the Prime Minister and I have decided that it is prudent to make that statement on the 17th of November, when it will be upgraded to a full autumn statement. 
What would be a reassuring budget now? So we've heard whispers of, well, more than whispers, actually, of tax rises and spending cuts. When we've got inflation at double digits, some of these might take the form of stealth tax rises. So this is effectively things like freezing income tax thresholds that effectively means that people will be earning higher incomes, but they're not actually higher incomes because the value of those incomes is being eroded by inflation, but nonetheless, they'll be paying more in tax. So by freezing those income tax thresholds, you're effectively cutting the thresholds, which means people are paying higher tax at a lower level of income. So we might see things like freezes come into play as a way of earning the government back some more money, but not kind of taking the political step of bringing those thresholds actually down. If they were to freeze the tax thresholds as they currently are, this would raise about $5 billion for public funds. That's interesting. Politically, they don't have to say we're raising taxes, but we're all going to feel the pinch much more. Exactly, yes. And that's something that we might also see with government budgets, that they won't see an increase, and that will mean a significant cut in real terms, which means the actual spending power will be lost to quite a degree. That's a good point because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the defence budget in particular going up to 3%, education and health, which seem to need a lot of help. And if they don't necessarily have to make cuts, if they just freeze them where they are, inflation will mean that they've been cut effectively. Exactly, because their prices will be going up. The current rate of inflation is 10.1%. So their prices will have gone up by, say, an average of 10%. Might have been more, might have been less, depending on what they spend on. If you're a school, like your bills would have gone up massively, but you're not being given any more money. So even though there isn't a cut, it's going to feel like a cut. Exactly that. That sounds painful. So whatever happens, we know there's quite a lot of pain coming down the road for most people. Definitely. And there have been hints that, you know, it's not only going to be our public services and it's not only going to be the portion of the economy that's a bit wealthier. The Chancellor and the Prime Minister have both said that there will be hardship and that this might affect more than just the most well-off in society. And so there will be a lot of hardship this winter. Because ideologically, Conservatives don't like raising taxes, does that mean they'll have to cut more from government spending? That is one of the options. If we look at the main areas of government spending, their public sector pay, benefits and also state pensions, a lot of those areas have already struggled. So, for example, benefits have gone up by quite a lot less than inflation, only by about 3% when inflation is near double digits. Public sector pay has been lagging for about a decade now. And state pensions, if they can keep the triple lock, which they've promised they will, would go up by 10%. So there's not a lot of room for movement without really being incendiary towards one of these areas. And does that look likely, do you think? Because there was talk, certainly about a week ago, that Things that had been promised in the manifesto, like a triple lock on pensions, might have to go because the finances are so desperate. I think that the Conservatives will be very wary of the fact that there is a general election coming in 2024 and pensioners are a very important voter demographic for them. So in a cynical view, I don't think that they will want to irritate them by removing the triple lock or the promise for it. Liz Truss tried to say that it will come back. We have had no such guarantees under Rishi Sunak or Jeremy Hunt, but it could be on the cards. Everything is on the cards given the level of savings that need to be made over such a short period. It does sound like we're in for a very difficult period. Is it now inevitable that we'll have a recession? 
In short, yes. So economists are mainly talking about how we can make it as short as possible and how we can avoid a really deep recession. But it's essentially a given that we're likely to be in a recession this current quarter, which is a three-month period, because we saw a contraction in growth in August. Those are the latest figures that we've got. The bank holiday in September is set to have made that a little bit worse. And a recession is defined as two consecutive three-month periods where the economy shrinks, essentially. So if we see that shrinking in this current three months, which we're likely to see, then we're effectively already in a recession. And the question is, how do we get back to growth as quickly as possible? What's the best case scenario going forward? You know, if we do inevitably now have a recession hanging in the air, what's the best case scenario for how soon we can come out of it? A lot of this depends on what the government decides to do on energy bills and how far they go with their support. So we currently have support until April for all households, and that's capping the average cost at £2,500 a year. After that, I think it's likely that the support will be limited, but we focused on the more vulnerable households. That's definitely the first thing. And then after that is avoiding a really deep recession is the best we can do. And some Economists have predicted that we'll come out of the recession in about spring or summer next year, provided that there is that support. But again, this changes if that support becomes a lot more limited. So I would say that the one thing is limiting the length of time we're in a technical recession. And the other one is keeping the most vulnerable household supported. Because even if we are in a technical recession for a little bit longer, but you know the worst of the consequences are avoided, that's also one of the best case scenarios, I'd say. So if we can get out of it by about the middle of next year and avoid the poorest households facing the brunt of the rises, then I'd say that that is making what is close to the best of a bad situation. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Sunday Times chief political commentator, Tim Shipman, and Times economics correspondent, Arthi Nashirpan. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond and Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.